sequence between Cling to the Crucified um, is beautiful, heart-wrenching song, and, and because it's in a minor key, I think that's why it's so heart-wrenching. I mean, the words are beautiful, and uh, I'm going to share a little bit about my own story with grief and um, tragedy and suffering and, and healing. And uh, from that story, one of the things that I said to my wife was, I don't want to cry any less, but I want to laugh more. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, crying comes easily to me, and there's no way I get through this without crying. Um, and hopefully we'll do some laughing as well. Uh, I, was, I was speaking with, um, with Eva Barry beforehand uh, um, about entering into this time of worship with you guys. Uh, and for me, like, I, I know Carlos, they're not well. Um, I, I know your congregation from afar. Uh, I was part of a small group praying for um, this congregation as one of the elders at Trinity. And, and then to see it come to life and fruition and grow and be here many years later is encouraging to me. Um, I did not know Mark at all. Uh, and then when I hear of his death, I, um, I entered into grief from afar and not closely. And then for me, I come this morning entering into that um, more closely than I have yet. Uh, and so I, I just want to acknowledge that up front. You know, to say that as, as we're, um, you guys are a month into this now, and, and I'm, I'm not in the same track, but I'm here sharing the Word of God with you. And the Word of God speaks to everything that goes on in our lives, and it speaks to everything that we deal with. And so it would make sense that a passage from the Word of God, particularly from the Psalms, which we're going to look at in a second, would speak to um, the situation of, of Mark's death and how you guys are processing and dealing with it. It speaks to a lot more, and that's mostly what I'll talk about. But I didn't want to get up here and not uh, acknowledge um, uh, the, the situation of which I'm walking into and, and where I am personally as well. Um, we are going to be looking at Psalm chapter 2. It's printed in your bulletin. Um, and there's a couple things I wanted to say about Psalm chapter 2 and the Psalms in general before we dive in. The first one is that in many ways we've, uh, we've lost kind of the language of poetry in our culture. Um, there's probably not very many of you that are reading poetry or writing poetry. Uh, we get some of it in the way of songs. Like we, we're, we're very much a culture that uh, is interested in song lyrics and dealing with song lyrics. Uh, you, you'll often see someone post or tweet a song lyric, right? But, but not often do they post the whole song. Um, and and when, you, when you take just a lyric, you miss the message of the whole song. We're also, um, as, as Christians, particularly in our tradition, uh, we're very good at exegeting down to the verse and even the word or the verb and parsing it out. Um, and, and sometimes we take that, and it's a good thing, don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, a, a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church of America. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm here for a reason in this tradition. Um, but often we can read... Uh, the Psalms the same way we read Romans. And, and, and that can be good, but we need to also consider the whole communicative effort of the book of Psalms, along with each individual psalm. Um, and so when we look at Psalm 2, I, to start out, I'm not going to read the whole psalm. I'm going to wait till the end to read it after we looked at it, so we can feel, feel the whole message of Psalm 2. Um, so that's the first thing that I want to say before we jump in. The second one is, uh, is that Psalm 1 and 2 kind of go together as introduction to the Psalter. 
the Psalms are called the, the, the hymn book of the people of God. Um, it's, it's a way for the people of God to come into worship together and leads us into worship. Uh, they're most of with most of them are meant to be sung. Uh, we, you know, and I'm not going to sing for you, uh, but uh, you know, it is it is meant for worship. Even even the songs that take us to places of crying out in darkness. Psalm 39. Lord, remove your hand from me, so that I may smile again. And I'm not going to preach that song, but to sing that. To, to pray, to to preach, to to live in a place where you're acknowledging, I'm going to worship by saying, this is too, your hand is too heavy upon me. Or Psalm 88, where darkness becomes my closest companion. And, and those are those are words of worship. No, and so and, and this is this is the worship. This brings us into worship. We start out the psalms by an introduction into Jesus. I'm just going to look at the first two verses, maybe three, I'll decide in a second, of Psalm chapter 1. If you have your bulletin, you probably, I mean, your Bible, you probably have it. If not, it's okay. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, without preaching a sermon on Psalm chapter 1, um, the delight in the law, when, when the psalmist writes, when David writes, his delight is in the law, what he's writing about is the whole counsel of God. What he's, and, and that's what they had. The, the law, the Torah, um, the first five books of the Bible, the, the delight in the law, the teaching of God. They say delight in the full counsel of God. His delight in the full counsel of God. And, and when we look today at the fulfilled counsel of God in Jesus Christ, what David is saying to us is delight in, in Christ. And again, it would be a whole sermon to, to flesh that out. But we, when we look at the law, and I'm not going to draw the connection between the law of Jesus, but when we look at the law, we're then called to look at Jesus. And so what, what Paul's saying is delight in the, all of the counsel of God, including the moral law, including the Ten Commandments, including that how we're supposed to live today, but also in the good news of Jesus Christ, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession on our behalf, His eternal reign as King, which we'll talk more about in a second. Then it goes on and says, The light of the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night, to meditate on Jesus. And then we come to Psalm chapter 2, and we get this picture of who is Jesus. So the first one is meditating on the law of the Lord. And then we see a picture of who we're supposed to meditate on. So as I said before, I'm not going to read the whole one. So let's just jump in. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And it's easy to look at this and immediately jump to application. To immediately jump to, oh, I know what that's talking about. That's talking about how the, the world is turning its back on God. Or maybe you think this is talking about how 
America has turned its back on God. What I don't want us to do is politicize this. Because that's not what David is talking about for us. In fact, if we're going to do good biblical exegesis, if we're really going to look into what the word is saying, we want to look at who is speaking, who's writing. David, king of Israel, 3,000 years ago. The only time that there was a unified monarchy, the only time that there was a, a king, a person of God, set over the people of God to rule as a religious leader and as a civil leader. And then we're looking at the situation in which he's, he stands, a little tiny nation of Israel, a little tiny nation of Israel that is surrounded by much more powerful nations. And, and then some smaller factions within the nation and, and so that is the context of which David writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers they counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so first we look at the immediate context, and then I think it's helpful too to look at uh, further context. So consider the nation of Israel in exile. Some 300 years later, 300 and 500, you can correct my math later if you want. But a few hundred years later, and the people are in exile. And, and what does this say to them at that point? How do they apply this to their lives? How do they apply the fact that the nations are still raging against the people of Israel, against the world? And then, and then we get to us. You know, and... Um, how do we then apply this to ourselves? And I, and I think if, we, if we're going to do even more good biblical exegesis, one of the things we can do is to put ourselves in the passage. Say, where do I fit in the passage? Where, where is it talking about me? Who, who is me in here? Um, am, am I King David? Probably not. Uh, am I the Lord's anointed? Am I the Lord? No. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that person. Uh, am I the one who's ruled by the king? Yes. Could I even be the one who's raging against? Who's raging against the Lord and against his anointed? I mean, have you ever been in a place where, where you've shaken your fist at God? I mean, have you ever been in a place where you've rejected his rule and authority? Or, or let's just take it, have you ever rejected anybody's rule or authority in your life? Have you ever struggled to submit? Have you ever been in a place where it's like, nope, I'm not going to do that, or I don't want to do that? Open rebellion, or even quiet rebellion, you do what you're supposed to, but in your heart, you're saying, nah, that's not the way I want things to go. Now, where do you struggle to submit? Is it in this kind of church government situation where you say, if I were leading a church, that's not the way I do it. Maybe you say it to your spouse or a few close friends. Or maybe you just say it in your heart. Or is it at work? At work you saying, you know what, if I was in charge, I would do things a lot differently. And again, maybe you grumble in your heart or maybe you grumble around the water cooler. Is it at home? Do you submit to your spouse? Yes, Ephesians 5, 20 says, wives submit to your husband, but Ephesians 5, 19 says, submit to one another. 
Children? All the kids come. There's one. There's another. Do you ever struggle to submit to your parents? If not openly in your heart, do you grumble and say, I'm struggling to obey and listen to them? At school? What about with the government? Let me possibly push someone's buttons here. Do you, do you pray for your government as much as you post about them on Facebook? Um, and, and if that's not the case, then, then maybe consider how are you submitting to your government the way that God clearly tells us to in Romans 13. I think the reality is, is that all of us struggle in, in every area of our lives to submit. Where we want to be king. I have this little game on my phone. I'll over there. I have this little game on my phone. It's called Clash of Clans. Some of you may have heard of it. It's very incredibly wildly popular. I mean, they've made hundreds of millions of dollars from a little free app. And it's a free app because... It, they call them freemiums, is that right? Yeah, freemium apps, because you can pay money to get upgrades, etc. It's, um, I've been playing it for a ridiculous long time, like over a year. And, and you, uh, you have a little village, and you build walls, and you build towers, and you train archers, and you train giants, and I could go on and on, but I won't. Um, and it, you grow, and it, the, the genius of it all is that you can play it for years. Um, and it's a real-time strategy game, if that means anything to you, which means that it does take strategy. You're defending your village. You're attacking the village. Um, and my village could be att being attacked right this very second. So, um, <laughs> and I'm not there to defend my kingdom. <laughs> and and, and that, that's the funny thing is that you know, I'll be, I got me sitting on the sofa, and I'll get my phone out, and I'll start playing the game, and my wife will come sit beside me, and she'll lean over, and she'll say, how's your kingdom? <laughs> Psalm chapter 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Yeah, think about that for a second. So God, you know, we just read, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rules take counsel together against the Lord, against the anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And God looks at these powerful kings and he looks at, he looks at Assyria and he looks at Egypt and he looks at anyone who sets themselves up and he laughs. You know, and it is as laughable as my little iPhone kingdom. He holds them in derision, ridicule, scorn. He laughs. And he says, I have already anointed a king. And it's not you. So, there, there's good news for us. There isn't just the message that you're not king. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Not of any part of your life. Now, I will, I will 
parenthetically speaking, as an aside, I'll say, we, we were created in the image of God to rule and reign righteously. And so it is good and natural and right for us want to rule and reign the areas that God has given us to rule and reign. It is good and right for us to want to righteously provide and protect our families, to care for them and to order them, to rule them in a way that gives honor and glory to God. The problem is, is that it's never enough. And ruling and controlling, ruling becomes controlling, and controlling becomes worrying. And that's another way that we can look into our look into our lives and say, "Am I trying to be king?" It's to examine your worries, to examine your anxieties. What is it that keeps you up at night? Or when you wake up in the middle of the night, what is it that keeps you from getting back to sleep? You know, for many of us, for me, it's money. Am I going to be able to pay the bills? Um, am I going to be able to make ends meet? Um, I do. I do serve unofficially at Grace Covenant in Williamsburg, uh, and but most of my hours are spent at Trader Joe's, uh, which is a fantastic company. Um, I, I love working for them, um, but I, I work at a grocery store, stocking shelves, you know. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm worried about how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to make ends meet? Um, and, and I know that just because I know our culture, I know that some of you are in the same spot. Are, are, are you worried about your, your relationship, your spouse, your wife, your husband? Are you worried about are you going to be able to really talk about those difficult things like money? Our status, our money. You know, or is there even a bigger chasm? Are you anxious about what's going on at work? How you've cut the corners and not told your boss the whole truth about what's going on? How you're finally going to have to reveal to them what's been happening there? Are you anxious about your children and where they are in life? what their relationship with God is like, the choices that they're making. The things that we're worried or anxious about, those are the things that point to those areas of life where we want to take control. Instead of ruling righteously, we instead want to control to make sure that we're secure and safe, where we want to be king, and ultimately not trusting that we have a king. The good news in, in verses 7 through 9, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So, yes, the good news, verse 7, look at it right there, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The good news is that it's pointing to Jesus. This psalm points to Jesus clearly, it does so. Um, but, there's, but there's good news too in verse 9. You shall break them with the rod of iron. Have you ever been broken? Has God broken you? That's a, that's a good thing. It's a hard, 
hard thing, and I'll share some of my own story of that in a minute. But it's a good thing, because God has made it clear in His Word that the worst thing that God can do is give you exactly what you want. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that He gave people who have turned away from Him, He gave them over to their lusts, He gave them over to their passions, He gave them over to things that they desired that they shouldn't. Like the worst thing that God can do to you is to give you exactly what you want. It's to give them over to your desires. Instead, he, he leaves us in this place, in this place where he breaks us. Um, I, I, you know, I've experienced a number of breaking events in my life. Um, I don't know if it's because I don't get it and God needs to keep breaking me. Um, you know, it's a different story. Maybe we can sit down over coffee and talk about it more. But um, my, my dad died tragically when I was 18. Uh, and wrestling with that for, you know, 23 years later. Um, but really the, the, the most breaking event was when I was playing at church in Seattle and my now ex-wife left. Um, and all of a sudden, my, my dreams of my career, my family, my church um, were all stripped away from me. And, and it, was, it was devastating in ways that I cannot um, even explain. I, there were many nights, the only way I got to sleep, I was reciting Psalm 23 over and over again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Or by just crying out, Jesus help me. Jesus help me. Jesus help me. It was utter devastation. And I looked at losing everything um, in many sense. And my uh, you know, relationship with my children was forever changed. Uh, and, and as I struggled through all of that, uh, I naturally came to the place of praying in the Psalms. And I'll explain more about how I ended up in the Psalms rather than stepping off of a bridge in a second. But as I started praying through the Psalms, because it expressed that the, the darkness that I felt. It expressed the, the hopelessness that I was dealing with. And I prayed through the Psalms, and I, and I, I found words for my cry. Uh, and, and as I continued to pray through Psalms, I, I got all of it through them, and then the next picture was Proverbs. So I started praying through Proverbs. And, and then to look at Proverbs through the Gospel lens, through the lens of wisdom is Jesus Christ, and then to find wisdom as I needed it because I was going through divorce, because I was without a job, because I was trying to figure out how to love and care for my kids through all of that, provide for them, to protect them. And then I prayed through Proverbs, and then and I got to the end of that, and the next page was Ecclesiastes. So I prayed through Ecclesiastes, and, and I and it's like, like, what's the point of all of this? And that's what God was dealing with in Ecclesiastes. And he says, it's all vanity. It's even wisdom. We get to that place with the hope, the promise, 
that God's going to make everything beautiful in His time. Ecclesiastes 3, 9, or 10, or 11, somewhere around. God's going to make everything beautiful in His time. Not my time, in His time. And then I prayed to Ecclesiastes, and I got to Song of Songs, and I thought, that's not going to be helpful. <laughs> I found myself in Psalms and Wisdom books, so I flipped back to Job. And I didn't want to go to Job, because I didn't want to paint myself as a Job figure. I hadn't. Sorry, Carlos. I hadn't lost myself. I lost my job. I lost my career. My relationship with my son and my daughter changed. I still had my health. I didn't want to paint myself as a Job figure. So I, I prayed through Job, and, and I was reminded of many great truths. That the best comfort that you can give someone in suffering is to sit with them in silence. And some of the worst things that you can do is to offer advice. I, I, I prayed, and, and I knew that I was coming to Job 38.4. I knew it was coming. But still, when I read, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? I was undone. And I was on the floor weeping like I had never wept in the previous ten months of dealing with everything. And I was wiping the floor with my snot and my tears. And I, re I recognized, okay, you're God. And you're my God. And my King. And I didn't have these words then, but the words now that I see from Psalm chapter 2 is that you're my King. And I do not like the way that you're providing and protecting me. So that's what a king does. I, you know, I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, so I think kings, I think medieval kingdoms and walls and towers and clash of players. And, um, <laughs> and so I think, what does a king do? A king provides for his people. What is a righteous king? What does is, what is a good king do? He provides for his people. He protects his people. From within and from without. And I didn't have these words, but but what I could, what I experienced when I, when I said, all right, you're my God, is that I don't like the way that you're providing and protecting me right now. But I'm going to trust that you'll continue to do that. So I prayed through Psalms. I prayed through Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. Uh, finished Job. And um, two weeks later, after that, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, a cancer of the immune system. Um, and I, I suppose God wanted me to be like a Job figure. Um, and really, I, it, was, it was not even a year after my ex-wife had left. And so, and, and, and when I got the diagnosis, I was in shock. And finally, when I could sit down. It's like, really, God? Really? I, I got there. I got to Job 38.4. I got to the place where I recognized that you are God, and you are sovereign, and you are the king, and you are going to provide and protect, and I'm going to have to trust you. But instead, you take me even further. Um, I, I went through chemo and radiation first part of 2011, 
And the place where that took me spiritually was a place of even deeper dependence upon Jesus. A place to, to depend on Him like I didn't know was possible as I struggled to get up the stairs. I got to the place where I, I resonated with Peter's words in John chapter 6. It's the bread of life discourse. And Jesus says, just said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no place in me. And the Jews think he's crazy and they walk away. And the larger group of disciples, the 70, they say, this is our teaching. And they walk away. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. When Peter says this, I don't see the same Peter who rushes forward to cut off the guard's ear. I don't see the same Peter who boldly steps out onto the water. I see the Peter who, who denies Christ even though he believes. I see the Peter who, who struggles to understand. How could he understand, right? Jesus just said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in me. It's crazy. We look at him on the side of the crucifixion and the Lord's Supper. For him, it's like, I don't understand. But what I know is that the only path of life is with you. That you have the words of eternal life. And that's where I sat as I went through chemo and radiation. And I came to a place where I learned how to have joy and how to have peace without being happy. I learned to suffer for the sake of those whom I was called to love and care for, my children, and whoever else God gave me to love and care for. My now wife, Robin, our new baby, Naomi. And I experienced the promise that, that in his time he will make all things beautiful. And that continues to happen. How can, how can that be true? It happens because of the nature of this king. You know, we get a warning in, in this last section, verses 10, 11, 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, where His wrath is quickly kindled. <laughs> kiss the Son, it's like kiss the ring of the ruler. If you don't kiss the, rule, the ring of the ruler, you're not um, submitting to him. So kiss the son, lest he be angry. And then the very last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why would, we, why would we take refuge in this king? How can we take refuge in this king? What is the, the nature and the character of this king? Remember, verse Psalm 1 is meditate on the law, on the king. Um, king Jesus. And then Psalm 2 is, who is this King Jesus? And as I was meditating on this passage, and just as another aside, I'll say, often we as Christians have lost meditation, um, uh, and we're fearful of how it's been co-opted by other faiths. You know, God right here is calling us to meditate. So I was meditating on this psalm in preparation for the sermon. 
was meditating on the psalm, and as I was reading through it, I, I get stuck in that second section. It says, He who sits in heaven's last, the Lord holds him in derision. Then, verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I pray that again and again. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I've set my king on Zion, the holy hill. And the, and the holy hill of Zion is Jerusalem. It's the, it's the seat of government for David. That's David the king. That's where he was, the ruler. But it's also the place on a hill in Jerusalem where, where King Jesus was crucified. And so what God did is he set his king on Zion. And his wrath and his fury was poured out on that king. It was poured out on Jesus, his wrath and fury poured out on Jesus so that we can take refuge in him. So that even though we shake our fists at God, we don't have to turn away. Jesus provided a way, even for our rebellious hearts, to come back and take refuge in him. And that is the nature of our King. He calls us to submit to Him. He, he, he's going to provide for us. He's going to protect us so that we may prosper, so that, he, so that we can find His beauty in His time. So what? I, I hope the reality of the Gospel is made evident through the Word and through the Spirit this morning. But as we step out of these doors, we leave this experience where we sang, where we worshiped, where we prayed together, importantly together. We step out of these doors and we, and we walk back into whatever is going on in your life. And so it's a question of so what, and it's a question for this passage. It should be a question for every sermon. It's a question for our lives as people of God as the body of Christ. So what? And the so what for this passage is you, you're going to walk out of these doors and you're going to be faced with the same anxieties, the same fears, the same struggles to submit, the same desires to control. You're going to face those minutes after we leave here. And so what difference is our time together this morning going to make? My hope is, is that as you face that, whatever it is today, you're going to walk into it and you're going to, your, your gut's going to tighten up. You're, you're, going to, you're going to feel that need to control your kids. Or you're going to feel that, that need to you know, check your portfolio to make sure. I, I don't understand it at all. I don't have a portfolio, but if you, if you are one of those people... You know, you're, you're going to feel that need to make sure that everything's in order. I, I don't, are you going to feel that twinge of, i got to go back to work in the morning and, and deal with, with the anxieties that presents itself in the cubicle? And so the so what is, what do you do when that happens? And, and my hope is, is that you'll remember our time here and you'll say, I don't have to be king. I have a king. It's Jesus. And he has promised to provide. 
He has promised to protect. And He has promised that our lives will prosper in Him, in His timing, in His way. I have a King, and I don't need to give in to those anxieties, those fears, those, those needs to control. I can rest in my King Jesus. I can cling to the crucified, the King Jesus who died, so that I can have life. Lord Jesus, you are our king, you are a good king, and we don't understand. We don't understand how you move and how you work and why you lead and guide our lives the way that you do. We don't understand what you're doing. We know that it's only to be life is only to be found in you. As we come to your table this morning, we pray that we would find life in you. We pray that we would find life in your broken body and your shed blood. We would find life that says we have a good king who gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.